Are Cisco supposed to eat fish? Are we supposed to eat eels? Sharks are probably fish, but what if they're made of plastic? To find out, let's ask Dr. Fish. That's right, it is Ask Dr. Fish. Welcome our twice, uh, every other month, excuse me, live streaming show where we ask questions of our two doctors. Fish, my name is Stuart Carlton. I work with Illinois, Indiana Sea Grant, and we're super excited to be here today. We are joined by uh, our good friend Carolyn Foley, research coordinator with Illinois, Indiana Sea Grant, not a Dr. Fish. Carolyn, how are you today? Doing well, and we are both sporting the hat today, yeah. but yes, I am definitely not a Dr. Fish. It's Monday. It's a hat day. It's a hat day. Friday is also a hat day. Anyway, the point is this. We got hats. You know, there's not enough Dr. Fishes here, so let's bring one on. First, we're going to bring on Dr. Titus Seilheimer of Wisconsin Sea Grant. Dr. Fish SG on Twitter. Titus, tell me about your shirt today. It looks like a fishy shirt. It is. A, it's a little subtle fish, uh, kind of fish outlines. Um, you know, something to wear around to that uh, fancy event. But you also want to sport fish. I thought it was pronounced uh, cuttlefish, so I guess we're already learning. Already learning. Our next Dr. Fish, Dr. Katie O'Reilly, the uh, AIS Aquatic Invasive Species Outreach Specialist with Illinois Indiana Sea Grant, and one of my top two Dr. Fishes. Katie, no fish shirt, though. No fish shirt today, but I am currently in an apartment in Milwaukee looking at Lake Michigan, so I feel like that's kind of about the same thing. I'll be honest, I feel like it's better. I feel like it's better. Uh, so that's good. Excellent, excellent. So audience, who is out there listening live? You can go to AskDrFish.com slash live, or maybe you're on Facebook, YouTube, Twitter. We're streaming live to more places now than ever before. Uh, we are setting records um, for our streaming, which is good. Our mics are hot and our streams are good. So we're ready to roll. Uh, if you have a question, just uh, put it in a little comment thing. Um, and that's good. And you can put it in there. And uh, if, if you have a really great comment, we'll put it up on the screen and we'll, we'll, uh, we'll talk about it. If you have a really important question, right? And oh, I forgot our fancy slogan. We don't want just any questions. We want your fish questions. We want your science questions. And we want your life questions. All of those for our doctor's fish. Let's just get right to it. Uh, so what we do is we collect things on social media and other big bits of fish news to send uh, to our doctor's fish to talk about. And this first one, um, it started really interesting. There's a documentary coming out called, called All Too Clear, which is about the um, water in, uh, this one's in Lake Huron, I think, and how much clearer it is. And, uh, and But they put out this video of Cisco. Now, before we show the video, uh, what do we know about Cisco and their diets? Cisco are a type of white fish that we have in the Great Lakes. And, you know, they can be kind of flexible in their diet, but generally they're more like, you know, eat, eating plankton, eating invertebrates. But something that's been really cool that, that we've started observing is they've also started incorporating more and more small fish into their diets, um, which, as kind of in that documentary, All Too Clear talks about, ties into this bigger problem or, you know, bigger change that's happening in places around the Great Lakes where, we're not having as much plankton in the water column because of invasive species. And so as there's the story in the Great Lakes, invasive species change a lot of things. And so they've changed the food web and fish like Cisco are starting to, you know, be a little less picky. They're, they're changing their diets around. I do believe we have some video of it. So I don't know if we want to run the video now. And then Titus, if you have anything you wanted to add to what Katie had. 
We'll run through it once and then we can talk over it. Yeah. And this is courtesy of All Too Clear, a documentary coming out next year, I believe. And uh, we're going to try to arrange to have them on teaching about the Great Lakes at some point as well. So if you want to talk about them with them, go for it. Okay, let's hear what we got. Okay, so in there, I don't, I'm not going to lie. Which one of those was the Cisco? <laughs> Stuart, the Cisco's were the bigger, the bigger ones, the bigger silvery ones. So what we saw in that video, uh, we, we see, so lots of little fish. That is a school of alewives. Uh, so they're, you know, schooling together. And then the Cisco's are the larger silvery fish uh, swimming around trying to feed on them. Um, so, you know, why is this unusual? And, and Katie started talking about that. I mean, they are planktivores. So they, you know, historically would be eating things like mysis, which is possum shrimp. They'd be eating diapariah. Um, diapariah has been kind of, you know, used to be really base of the food web, really important for lots of species. Now it's uh, less abundant than it was. And Cisco's have, you know, kind of find, found a way, life finds a way. Recent research on these, you know, finding them eating small round gobies early in the year. Um, later on in the year, they're they're eating small, kind of those younger the year alewives. So, you know, when they're small, like you look at those alewives in this video and, you know, most of those are too big for a Cisco to eat. Like they're really just homing in on the small, the really small ones because, uh, with lots of fish, you know, you can only eat stuff you can fit in your mouth. And Cisco's do not have a big mouth, uh, but they can eat really small fish. So, and, you know, kind of the third interesting invasive food choice, not a fish, but spiny water fleas also uh, have been shown to be kind of, a you know, later in the year when they're eating little alewives, they're also eating spiny water fleas. So, you know, it, it takes time, but but fish discover these novel food sources eventually. And so I pulled up a, an image of diapariah. So um, Titus mentioned some of the other things that um, that Cisco have eaten historically. And so uh, this, this is, is why you have an image. Okay. Carolyn's our invert nerd, just for those out there. Yeah. I mean, anytime I can bring an invertebrate in, I, I'm going to. But the, this is the part of why you guys... I would imagine that part of why they eat the smaller fish, even though they're not used to eating fish, is because they're used to eating little sh shrimp-like guys or scuds, some people call them, and things like that. So, yeah, I had to show an image of diapariah. Have to have to support the inverts here. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Because they are important food for fish. We love them. I have said that many times in my life that, yes, because they are important food for fish. So the idea here is that there are fewer diapariah, though, because the water is clearer thanks to the invasive uh, mussels. Is that sort of the basic story? It, yeah. I mean, the basic story is, you know, we've got these zebra and quagga mussels that have come in and established in the last 30-ish years in the Great Lakes. And these guys are just, like, super great at filtering the water. Uh, that's why, you know, some places you go in the Great Lakes, Lake Michigan, it almost looks tropical water, like the super clear water. It's because the mussels are doing a really bang up job of filtering all of those zooplankton, phytoplankton out of the water column, um, which, you know, good for the mussels, not so good for small fish that rely on on eating those zooplankton and uh, to, you know, become bigger fish. And so that's why. And, yeah. and you also get fooled because you're like, oh, this looks beautiful. You jump in and it's freezing. Uh, so good luck with your swimming. Absolutely. And I mean, that's, you know, the story of the Great Lakes is change. And a lot of species have, you know, started to eat different 
you know, introduced species. I'm thinking like the smallmouth bass that have started to eat round goby in some places, goby being an invasive species, um, and really capitalizing on a new food source despite some of the other challenges. So as as Titus said, life does find a way. Yeah, and I think this, you know, also because we're in the whitefish world and the Cisco world, uh, you know, really the the flexibility of this group of species. We've seen similar things with like whitefish switching over to eating more round gobies. Um, you know, people who are ice fishing for uh, whitefish out on Green Bay in the winter, they are using like a it's like a little round goby lure is how they catch them. So you know, it is like whitefish have kind of switched, Cisco's have shifted uh, to more piscivory. And, you know, if you, and really you go talk about is, is a Cisco, a Cisco is, is all, are all these other deep water Cisco's just Cisco's. And um, so there's a, you know, they're, they're kind of this whole group of forms in flux anyway. So I think it's not that or unexpected that they would be able to shift like this. Cool. So y'all are talking about shifting in response mostly to invasive species, but Katie mentioned, um, you know, all the other changes and things like that. So as we know, one of the big changes in the Great Lakes is related to adaptations to climate change and fish have to change. So we have a comment from one of our viewers. Um, We have had severe droughts the past 10 years. I believe it was a Lake Ontario tributary. Three times creek dries to some underground and pools, but essentially dry. Never before in our farm diaries to 1875. And I will just double check. Um, Lake Ontario tributary that participates in lamprey eel monitoring and eradication from Canadians on our farm. So so I guess, you know, maybe I don't know if you guys want to comment a little bit on tributary fish and um, like severe droughts and what types of adaptations there are or how they're responding or different things like that. I mean, clearly monitoring and eradicating Canadians is something that's all on our minds uh, these days. Uh, But yeah, you know, I would say, you know, that is it's definitely, you know, there's kind of this larger climate piece to that. And I would I would think it's, you know, not just the droughts, but also, you know, to look in the watershed scale too, like what is happening in the watershed. I think a lot of, you know, there's more intensive water use in a lot of our basin as well. So, you know, maybe historically we have those droughts. But those creeks were more resilient because there was still more uh, water available within the watershed. So, yeah, that's definitely, uh, you know, hard if you're a fish to live in a, a creek without new water. Yeah. And I think what's also really interesting to me about that, and I, I'm so glad that viewer shared that, is thinking about kind of connectivity. Like a lot of Great Lakes fish species use tributaries at different points in their life you know, for spawning in the spring, like they run up these tributaries. Um, And, you know, if things are changing where they don't have access, you know, say it's really dry at a time of year, they need that habitat. What's that going to do for the population moving forward? I think that's something that, you know, we're starting to get a better handle on and try and understand, you know, what are going to be the implications when you, you know, you don't have water. So how are you going to get to the nice spawning ground? Yeah, and I'd you know call out the the importance of these records. You know, a, a farm diary back to 1875. I mean, uh, I think a lot of us when we look at you know what's happening, say the creek that I I monitor next to me, like I have a 10 year span that I've been here and looked at it. But you know, to go back over you know over a hundred years is you know really amazing. And I think that's you know scientists are looking for these types of records so you can pull in this long term. You know, maybe the scientists weren't. Uh, 
recording since 1875, but farmers are, and you know, that's really valuable information. Yeah. One thing we talk about a lot on teaching about the Great Lakes is the value of, of uh, government records and government like monitoring and things like that. And that's one thing. But uh, Big Dan's farm diary is another way of doing it. And it's also really, really valuable. And that's uh, so the data is so important. And, and it's great to see it out there. But I would buy a book called Big Dan's uh, Farm Diary. Um, so speaking of using habitat in different life phases, there's this article out recently in the conversation about eels and how they fascinated us for ages, but now we need to stop eating them. Um, I've not eaten an eel, uh, given their tubular shape. I think you could maybe put them on a hot dog bun. We'll talk about this some other time. What do we know about eels in the Great Lakes and is eating eels in the Great Lakes a problem, Katie? Oh my gosh. Uh, what do we know about eels in the Great Lakes? Um, well, other than the fact that they're just adorable and I love them, eels in the Great Lakes are such a cool subject for me because we have eel. So just to be clear, the eel we're talking about is the American eel, which has this really cool life history. Um, basically, it's the reverse of a salmon. It is born in the ocean, but comes into coastal areas, freshwaters as an adult. And so we have eels natively in Lake Ontario because, you know, they could have access to the ocean moving up upstream. Fun fact about that too is also in the Great Lakes and like Lake Ontario, the only uh, eels we have are female. The males for some reason tend to hang out just by the coast. They don't come in inland. So, you know, it's girl power in the Great Lakes when it comes to American eels. But in kind of my invasive species hat as well, so we had these eels in Lake Ontario. When we opened up the rest of the Great Lakes, you know, when we built canals like the Welland Canal, um, the eels actually made it further up. So you can find American eels in other parts of the Great Lakes, uh, not just Lake Ontario these days. All that to say, you know, other than just spewing eel facts at you, which I could do for spew an away. entire show. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, yeah exactly. If you're going to spew, though, spew into this. Spew into this. Um, but the in, when we're thinking about it, you're like, okay, cool. Am I going to get to eat my eel sushi now from the Great Lakes? Uh, there used to be a commercial fishery for American eel in Lake Ontario. But because of concerns about overfishing, uh, the loss of habitat because of dams, they actually had to close the fishery uh, for American eels in Lake Ontario. And so right now it's pretty, you know, you're not really going to find Lake Ontario eels on the menu anytime soon. You may find them other places, but eels, both the American eels and their really closely related cousin, the European eels are, are endangered because of a mix of overfishing and habitat. So we can get into the subject of, you know, should you be eating eels and the implications for that? I assume, Titus, that you have eaten eels as our resident. That's what I was going to say. He always tells us he's eaten all of them. So, right. so Ooh, what does eel yes. taste like, Titus? And have you had Great Lakes eel or just this European eel? I wish I had, you know. Um, yeah, I'm not sure. I don't think I have had eels. Um, I was going to say, you know, eels, uh, when you think Lake Ontario eels, uh, you know, the challenge for them, you've got dams blocking the way to get upstream. And then when those females do decide to head out to the sea, they get chopped up in the turbines of these power plants. So, you know, it, it is kind of a hard life. I So I do have one uh, eel experience, and that was on uh, a coastal wetland in the 
uh, eastern end of Lake Ontario where we caught an eel and it was it was really big and adorable. They are absolutely ador- adorable. So yeah, so you know, decline of the commercial fishery. I think uh, where eels because you do see eels on like you know, sushi menus, uh, sometimes. And if you heard of the glass eel, um, business, so glass eels are the, the stage when they're, they're kind of heading out. They've, uh, they're heading out to, uh, are they heading in? No, they're heading the in glass eels freshwater. Be, yeah, going towards freshwater. Yeah. So they're, that's when they've kind of hit the shore. They're going up the tributary so they can get big. And I know in some places like Maine, they will, you know, catch those and, you know, they're really small, but they're, they're basically worth, you know, more than their weight in gold because they catch these small eels and then they put them on a plane, send them to these uh, farms and in, in places like Japan where they will grow the eels up to, to large size. And I think that is probably, you know, one of the big sources of, of, you know, why we shouldn't eat them because of this, uh, you know, catching the small ones. Uh, then those are not making it up to the habitat and, and growing to be large and they will not contribute in the future. So, yeah, you know, it it's, you know, back to the sustainability fisheries. You know, it, I think every time we select a fish that we're going to eat, we should probably be informed and, uh, you know, make a good decision. Is it managed well? And if it is, eat it. If it's not, well, maybe look for an alternative. Thanks. And so, um, there's a, a comment here, like before we go. So I want to acknowledge that in the comments, a couple of people are talking about how they have enjoyed eating eels or things like that um, before too. And there, I have the benefit of seeing the background document where we put some of the questions. And there's a note on here that all eels are born in the same place, the Sargasso Sea. And as a like Jane Eyre lover, I'm always like, oh, the wide Sargasso Sea. So um so can you talk just really, really briefly, um, Katie, maybe about that place and and what it means for it? Like all eels? What do you mean by all eels? So all of the uh, eels within this uh, genus Anguilla, which is like a freshwater eel. So both the American and their European cousins. And for those who aren't familiar, the Sargasso Sea is a part of the Atlantic Ocean, kind of around Bermuda. Um, and it's it's a sea because it's got this kind of current system that sort of keeps it somewhat contained. Um, but what's cool about the European and American eels is they're like considered panmictic, which is a weird word. But essentially, you know, that they because they're all spawning in this one location, there's the exchange of like, you know, uh, you know, genetics among essentially different fish because they're all coming back to this location. Um, But then those same currents that help kind of define the Sargasso Sea are the currents that help take them back to, you know, the Atlantic coast or up to Europe, you know, around uh, Spain, Portugal. And so they, they kind of jump on those as a super highway to bring them, bring them back to the shore. Um, And then, you know, similarly, thinking about, okay, when it's time to go back to the Sargasso Sea at the end of their lives so that they spawn, you know, a lot of it has been kind of unknown to us as scientists over the years. We didn't know where they were going when they left uh, the freshwater ecosystems. And it really wasn't until, you know, like the last 150 years that we really had a good sense of where do these eels go and where are eel babies coming from? Was it tagging? Do you know this is this might be outside? Of, were they like tagging eels or 
you know, do they grab onto one and just go along for the ride? What did, well, how did they uh, figure out the Sargasso Sea situation? The old triple S. You know, that's a really good question. I, I am not sure. And that is for, for an eel fanatic, like, like myself, that seems like, uh, you know, I'm, I'm having a, a moment here, but, but what's really, I think, you know, cool thinking about how do fish navigate back to their natal areas. I think in the past on this show, we've talked about salmon using like different scents, using um, the earth's magnetic field. And it, it's thought that eels use a similar system to help them get back to that Sargasso Sea. And it's really, you know, when you think about just the, uh, you know, how amazing the biology of these eels is, you know, like they're, they're eggs in the Sargasso Sea and they just drift. And there's all these weird looking shapes, like as they drift and, uh, you know, but essentially like they, it's not like they swim out from the Sargasso Sea and then swim back when they're adults. They're basically just kind of drifting and, but then they know how to get back there eventually, which is, you know, really cool. It's the amazing uh, ecology of fish. The amazing ecology of fish. That is, you guys are hilarious. I love it. Okay, so um, we're going to move to another topic now. This is something that has sort of been coming up over time. Titus has been talking about it. It's springtime and spring spawning. So Titus, do you want to talk a little bit about the spawning? Is it the spawning of suckers that you wanted to talk about? Yeah, it is. Uh, spring is here, and that means uh, that it's time for the uh, suckers to start moving upstream and uh, spawning uh, for us here in the Great Lakes. And, uh, you know, it is, and there's a, a picture there of what a spawning sucker would look like. Um, so they kind of aggregate in these tributaries and, uh, you know, obviously pretty shallow water. Uh, they spawn and then they they head back out. And uh, so Titus, I've there's been three of them there. Hold on, hold on. There are three of them there. We need to discuss this fact for just a moment. Well, we've got a, a video that uh, demonstrates even better. Okay, let's go to the hot sucker video. And <laughs> yeah, so here, so here we go. This is uh, so we've got a sucker there uh, swimming along. Um, and I I've got a lot of these videos. Just you know, hours of of. You know, the, the amazing what you can get with a, a GoPro. Here's a kind of a swim by. There it goes. And of course, oh, okay. Here, so here we're going to go. So, you know, basically uh, what's going to happen here, the female is kind of uh, the larger of the fish. The males are a little smaller. And uh, when she kind of signals that she's uh, ready to release those eggs, you get a kind of a pile of males that, that come in there. Um, and, you know, everybody wants to get their reproductive material in there. The, the female wants to get all her, uh, her eggs fertilized. There goes another one. So are they just hitting the mic or is that some sort of uh, copulatory emission sound? I think they're, they're just hitting the camera. Yeah. Uh, although, uh, so Karen Murchie at, uh, at Shed Aquarium has been actually using some really high quality uh, sound recording equipment that she's borrowing from the ornithology lab at Cornell mm. uh, to actually measure, you know, record some of these sounds. Cause they actually do have kind of, you know, there's a, a sound of the, the rocks being moved, but there's also kind of these uh, they may have, they're kind of producing some sound. So, you know, this is a, a great, uh, great and kind of interesting, um, you know, underappreciated fish and, uh, you know, they're, they're right here. And I think one of the greatest things is, you know, you can go down to your, your kind of local tributary 
and you can check these fish out, you know, just see them from shore. And it's a, a really great, you know, when they're, when they're spawning, they don't really care uh, if you're there or not. So obviously no shame. <laughs> I do feel a little embarrassed though. I'll be honest. I'm like, should we be watching? And then, yeah. So, but so are these white suckers? Yes. Yes. These are, these are white suckers. We also see, uh, not necessarily in this creek, but uh, long nose suckers are also kind of the other in Lake Michigan. At least you you know kind of see long nose and white suckers. And I would say, Titus, you know, even if people aren't aren't into the suckers, which they definitely should be, spring is definitely you know the love is in the air or water as you have it. Um, a lot of species around the Great Lakes are spawning in the spring, you know, and, and a lot of them do these kind of spring runs where they come into some of the creeks and tributaries around the lake. So things like walleye, um, you know, sturgeon, you name it, you name it, love is in the air at this time of year, for sure. And for those who, this is good. If you want to see a lot of this, as far as I can tell, Titus's only job in the spring um, is to walk on these rivers or by these rivers and take videos of suckers, um, uh, during their most precious and private moments and uh, take videos and send them out to the whole world uh, to see. And so it's really fun to to watch them. But as far as I can tell, that's all he does. So just follow Titus on Twitter uh, at DrFishSG for sucker, what's the G for? Suckers getting it on, DrFishSG. <laughs> so, okay, so you talked a little bit about other species. So what are other big species that spawn in the springtime? Um, maybe Katie, go first. Yeah, I mean, the, the one that always sticks with me, and this is kind of because of where I grew up, but the walleye, um, particularly in like Western Lake Erie Basin, make some really impressive spawning runs up rivers like the Sandusky River, the Maumee River, that bring a ton of anglers to the region uh, because, you know, the, the river is just chock full of fish. Uh, but I know Titus, in addition to having, you know, suckers galore, also has sturgeon i was trying to think of another g word i was gonna say sturgeon's galore but it's just everything yeah it's just s s fish galore you know and these what's cool about these spawning runs is you know it's not necessarily like the salmon in the pacific northwest where a lot of these fish will die and you know provide a lot of nutrients to the system but they do still provide some nutrients and like their gametes so eggs you know, providing food for fish. Um, they move around stones and stuff, which kind of gets invertebrates into the water column. So they can provide a lot of productivity to these creeks right at the end of winter when things are pretty like, you know, somewhat dead. So it's kind of like a spark to get things going in the spring, which is really cool. No spark like a sucker spark. And actually we had a, a voicemail question uh, they can bring on now. Um, so we do have, do you know we have a fish hotline? Listeners, we have a fish hotline. You can call it 24-7 at 765-496-IISG. Uh, that's for Illinois, Indiana Sea Grant. And ask us your fish questions, your science questions, your life questions. And we had a, an anonymous listener. If you don't want to be anonymous, you got to leave your name. An anonymous listener call in and ask a couple of questions. The first one I think we'll ignore, but we'll play the whole thing. And the second one we will listen to. Here is the question. One second. Hi, Dr. Fish. Fishes. That's a great question. Is it fishes? When is it fish and when is it fishes? But my question is, uh, what's the difference between an eel and a lamprey? And I have another question. How do fish know where to go to spawn? Thanks. 
So we'll come back to eel and lamprey, but how do fish know where to go when to spawn? Do we know how fish know where to go when to spawn? Yeah, so and and to stay, stick with the sucker example, you know, part of what what this what we're doing is uh, looking at and what we when I say we, it's uh, really Karen Murchie at Shed Aquarium. She's the the force behind this, and it's a whole citizen science uh, from you know north to south. Lots of people uh, out there looking for suckers. It's not just me. I'm not the only one. There's lots of people out doing this, um, and. So, you know, one of the questions with that is, uh, you know, temperature, is it temperature? Is it flow? Is it a combination of temperature and flow? Because uh, those are a few of the cues uh, that can tell a fish that it's, uh, you know, time to spawn, it's time to migrate. Um, and yeah, those, you know, two, two of those. Uh, Katie also mentioned uh, smell before referring to salmon. And, you know, that is certainly a, another way that that fish will find their way home as it is. Well, and I was just going to say too, you know, we talk a lot about fish returning to like their birth streams, but there are some fish that don't have that tight connection. Like they don't necessarily need to go back to the exact stream they spawned in. And so we kind of call those guys like strayers. So they'll, you know, just go to another stream and spawn. They don't have that, you know, obligation to go, go home and, and visit mom mom, uh, sucker or whatever. Uh, related, our, our, uh, friend, big Dan has a comment related to this. I think suckers are uh, very resilient fishy head. We had them come two miles upstream in a muck ditch that beavers have dams on. Uh, so that's uh, impressive. Big Dan, thank you for that. Um, and then as a reminder, viewers, you are listening to ask Dr. Fish. This is a show where our two doctors fishes ask, answer your fish questions, science questions, and life questions. If you have a question, just put it in the chat right now. Use the Twitter hashtag. Ask Dr. Fish. You can also email us at askdrfish at gmail.com. And thanks to that anonymous viewer for their hotline call. Um, you know, one other thing that I think is common when talking about fish spawning in different areas and where they go is people always tend to think of salmon, right, in the migration. And actually, listener or viewer, viewer, viewer Bob Crum has a question related to that. Uh, Bob says, is there any discussion about lowering the amount of Pacific salmon stocked uh, in the Great Lakes, I presume, and increasing the Atlantic salmon to Lake Ontario that are native to it, it'd be great to bring them back, sort of that native uh, fish rather than the rather than the uh, non-native fish. Titus, do you know anything about if there's a movement to sort of change the way that those species compositions or, uh, you know, the relative amounts, I suppose? I'm really glad you asked Titus this first, because I feel like this, this is a, a topic that can get very, you know, dicey. So, Good work, Titus, taking this. So <laughs> yeah, no, we tell we like dicey questions on Ask Doctor Fish. I want to be very clear; it's not just fish spawning. Yeah, Katie, you're you're the invasive species specialist, so it seems like, uh... <laughs> and you're the fishery specialist, so this is right up both. But yeah, yeah. So I, you know, I think uh, in general, you know, Lake Ontario is not our area that uh, Katie and I work in a lot, but uh, you know, there is. I think you know, this is a question about kind of balance uh, between. And I would say we have a similar kind of discussion here. It, it would be in Lake Michigan, it's more Pacific salmon and, and, and introduced trout versus lake trout, which are native. Um, you know, I, I think that, uh, you know, the managers are, uh, they are trying to balance a lot of different things with their decisions on what to stock and how many to stock. Um, the uh, the numbers of, of Pacific salmon stocking is generally linked to uh, how many uh, prey fish are out there, what the health and the status and the trends are, 
in uh, the the forage fish base in Lake Ontario. So a lot of that is driven by uh, alewife numbers. And also uh, it's harder to get a picture on how many round gobies are out there, but, you know, we know they're important. Um, you know, so it, it's kind of how are those going? How are, um, you know, ultimately what is what is the the management or you know what is the what do we want to get out of the lakes and i guess we in a, a larger sense uh is a, a lot of times it's anglers who kind of drive uh you know what is uh, being managed for because uh fishing licenses tend to fund uh the uh, natural resource you know fisheries programs so uh, and then there's also kind of you know what can you like what can you uh actually uh, support in terms of uh, stocking numbers. So that's like how much capacity do you have for within the hatchery systems to grow these different species? So in uh, generally, we see a lot of Chinook salmon that get stocked and they're, you know, they are kind of one of the most desirable sport fish to catch, uh, but they're also, uh, you know, they, they spend less time in the hatchery. So you you get the eggs in the fall, you can stock them out in the spring, that's a, a pretty short time. Some of our other trout and salmon need a lot more time in the hatchery and that takes up space and that means you can't grow other things. So, you know, that's, that's just sort of the, the, the complexity there of those decisions. And, you know, the Atlantic salmon was, you know, widespread historically, but really by the mid 1800s, totally gone. Um, so I, I think we can say there, there has been some success with some of the restoration programs, but, you know, also you'd need to look to the the whole Lake Ontario watershed, um, and really restore a lot of, you know, habitat and uh, reducing barriers to really uh, bring them back to what they were historically, if that's even possible. I agree with everything Titus has said. I also, you know, want to acknowledge we're, we're talking about like salmon and trout and Al brought up a really good comment in the chat about, you know, perch not being as, as common in uh, particularly Lake Michigan, where I do a lot of my work. So, you know, thinking about the whole ecosystem, like, you know, perch also is going to probably require some management of not just, you know, throwing perch in the lake, but like, what kind of habitat do we have? Do we have food to support them? And so, you know, thinking about managing these fisheries is really thinking about managing the ecosystem more broadly. Yeah. And like, you know, from a perch perspective, I mean, they were a huge sport fishery, a huge commercial fishery in Lake Michigan up until the mid nineties and, you know, really declined the commercial fishery closed in the mid nineties. And, you know, we've basically left perch alone in Lake Michigan since then. Um, so 25 years and, you know, their numbers just haven't re come back. They, you know, even though we're not really fishing for them that much, there's still some recreational angling. Um, they're just not doing well. And that, you know, really does uh, does talk about the the influence of the food web because, you know, one of the bottlenecks, probably those just little larval fish like you hatch. Where's the food coming from? Because the quagga mussels have changed what the food web's like. And, you know, if those baby perch can't find food, they're not going to make it. So, yeah. So, you know, hatcheries might be one piece of the puzzle, but, you know, also what's the health of the the food web, too? 
this kind of links back to what we were talking about at the beginning of this episode with adapting to changes and, you know, the entire ecosystem is changing and things like that. A couple of other comments um, or questions for you. Um, first, we'll go to Cold Spring. Are the blue pike found in Canadian lakes the same as what once was in Erie? If so, are there any thoughts on restocking? I miss them and have longed to see them back for decades. Any thoughts on that, uh, Titus or Katie? So the blue pike. Uh, is one of those places where common names get a little confusing. Uh, so blue pike typically refers to a what was once thought to be a subspecies of walleye that lived like in Lake Erie. Uh, more recent research has indicated it might have just been like a special color morph. Um, but in general, that is no longer found in Lake Erie, though it is like uh, Cold Spring said, still found in isolated places. Uh, elsewhere. So I I don't know if there's been any talk, again, because it is kind of this confusing, is it a subspecies? Is it just a different kind of like color? Um, but that was also something that disappeared in some of the big changes that were happening, like, you know, near the end of the 20th century from Lake Erie, which coincided with a lot of invasive species getting getting a foothold, as well as some of the, you know, nutrient issues that Lake Erie has. I don't think we, we have time to get into it today, but it'd be interesting one time to talk about sort of the decisions you have to make in stocking versus habitat restoration and, and all of that, because I know that gets really complicated as well. Right. And I was just talking, I'm going to put another invertebrate in there. Just the other day, um, I was listening to some scientists ta- who are monitoring uh like all five Great Lakes, but then they were talking about in Lake Michigan. So we talked about how diapari went down. We know zebra and quagga mussels, particularly quagga mussels, have expanded across the Great Lakes. They were talking about um, a new snail that is pretty common um, around now too. And I was like, oh, goodness gracious, another thing. And apparently it can just pass right through fish guts. So like, and that's actually one way it might be being spread is like if a fish tries to eat it and then swims along and then drops it out. Um, So, okay. So we do have, um, I think one more question that maybe we'll send to Titus to think about. Um, Big Dan is considering perch and sunfish for commercial farm production in ponds, hopefully can produce enough feed natu- do they feed naturally through oh hopefully they can produce enough feed naturally through insect rearing do you have any suggestions for perch and sunfish on commercial farm production and feed types yeah and i will i will do the ultimate uh sea grant answer here and i will refer you to other sea grant folks uh out there you know especially you know i think in I would look to Ohio Sea Grant and Illinois Indiana Sea Grant, uh, which are also states where there is a lot more uh, perch and sunfish grown in ponds. Uh, it's kind of less common up in Wisconsin, but uh, yeah, I think those are you know good resources to talk to ahead of time. You really you know with starting a new farm or a new uh, production, you want to you know really think it through and and make sure that it will work uh, fully before investing a lot of time and money. Yeah, I don't know what state you're in, Big Dan, but but uh, we do have the Great Lakes Aquaculture Collaborative, right, which is where a lot of sea grant experts on aquaculture specifically get together um, and interact about issues or something. So if you Google that, you'll be able to find your local sea grant contact and, and reach out to them, and they would be able to provide more specific either advice or resources than, than we can here. And we do, you know, as another plug for some of our products uh, in Great Lakes Sea Grant, or 
Great Lakes Aquaculture Collaborative. That's what it is. Um, yes, we we did actually produce a whole series of webinars and farm tours. Uh, we had a, a few, you know, there's lots of great resources on there. So really a, a good place to start and uh, look through some of those resources um, and then reach out to some of the experts uh, who will be happy to help. You're a company man, Titus. I like it. <laughs> so we had one more thing that Stuart mentioned in the introduction that is just kind of a wild story right now related to fish. Um, and it's called Shark Gate. And I asked to introduce this because I wanted to say Shark Gate that way. Uh, scientists claim rare shark in photo is actually just a plastic toy. Um, so do you guys have any thoughts about this story? Can you summarize it or um, kind of what's happening? Yeah, I can give a quick intro. Uh, basically, what had happened is last year, a group of scientists published a you know, peer-reviewed article that was saying they found this juvenile goblin shark washed up on the beach in Greece. And this was really exciting because goblin sharks had not been known from the Mediterranean Sea. The goblin shark, for those of you who aren't familiar, is this super funky looking deep sea shark um, that just, if you can see the image on the screen, just looks very, very Look at silly. the schnoz. That's what you're- Look at the schnoz I mean, on come that on, thing. right? It's like, uh, was it Gonzo? Yeah. Gonzo. It is definitely a Gonzo schnoz. But what was interesting is the scientist who wrote this paper didn't actually see the shark in person. They received an image of it from a citizen scientist. And once, so this paper was published and then other scientists started looking at it and they're like, something looks off about that goblin shark and like off more so than the just general offness of gob goblin sharks. And so those researchers wrote a, what we call like a comment or a rebuttal saying, we think something up, it actually looks like it might be a toy. And so then there was this big discussion in the scientific community of like, okay, is this a juvenile goblin shark or is this a toy? And someone ended up posting like a link to an eBay uh, eBay site that was the same exact model toy goblin shark. And so re really recently, the original authors of this paper retracted or took, you know, essentially took back the paper and well, it did was they retract it. They did retract it. Yes. Yeah. Only within like the last couple of weeks or so. Yeah. No, when I looked at this originally, they hadn't, they were doubling down. And I, I, I was like, Oh, this is, it's a tough situation to be in. Right. <laughs> it's super tough. I, would, I mean, I, I can't imagine how, how, you know, that group of researchers felt, but you know, in doing the ethical thing, you know, they retracted the paper uh, once it, once they figured out, yeah, this was definitely a toy. Yeah, I think, you know, a, kind of a challenge here is, you know, this is, you know, it's like based on one picture. Um, and I, you know, as a fishery specialist, I get a lot of pictures of fish and, uh, you know, usually they're real fish. But I have had, a, you know, one of those funky looking bat fish from Florida that you see. Um, somebody sent, you know, one of those. And they're like, my buddy said he caught this in the Fox River. And I was like, I didn't even realize, like, it didn't even look like a real fish. Um, and I, I told him it's probably not a real fish. And I, you know, later on found out it was an actual species, but it's definitely not something that anyone would catch, uh, in the Fox river. So yeah, you gotta be kind of on your guard and maybe not get too excited 
about publishing stuff. Yeah, it can be exciting, though, when you see something you think is cool. But so April is uh, Citizen Science Month, and we often call it community science to avoid sometimes the debates around the word citizen that have cropped up in recently. But so this calls into this brings up that idea of uh, of uh, citizen science or community science, right? And how it can be valuable, but also, um, you know, it's not it's not free work, right? If there's a little bit of challenge associated with it. Are there any cool sort of uh, community science or citizen science efforts that y'all know about going on? Maybe our listeners can participate in. Yeah, beyond the uh, community science project that Titus is involved in with the sucker monitoring through Shed Aquarium, uh, there is actually an event called the Great Lakes BioBlitz that might currently be going on, or at least it's sometime soon. I'm messing up my dates. It starts on Earth Day. It starts on Earth Day. So look at this, there's still plenty of time. Yeah, and essentially it, it's part of a, uh, this growing effort using a site called iNaturalist, which has folks like, you know, take images of things that they observe, upload them to the site. They can get identifications from people who have a little bit more expertise. And then it provides like a really nice record of where we're seeing certain species, you know, finding new populations that we might not have known about. So this is going to be something I think is really cool happening here, starting on Earth Day, that people could get involved with. Yeah, and you know, when you're out there monitoring suckers, it's also a great time to record some bird sounds and uh, take some pictures of trees. And because uh, I, I like to participate in these uh, bio blitz as well uh, to try to help Wisconsin beat all the other Great Lakes uh, Sea Grant states. Um, because everything is a competition. You sure so beat us on it's, yeah. it is fun. You sure beat us on soccer videos. That's good. And of course, if you do that, we are working under Foley's um, assumption. Now, uh, we also have um, so something that some of our, our viewers slash listeners um, may be a part of, may have been a part of before, is um, helping look at um, fish diet analysis at Michigan State University and various other places too. This is one example, but there's. I've seen a lot of really cool science talks. So thank you to anybody who, when they've brought their fish back, have said, yeah, sure, you can have the guts or you can take a sample or things like that. Um, because I've seen some really cool results related to that where people have been really you know, able to better understand how the whole food web's working to better try to manage it in the face of all these changes. So, so thanks so much to everybody. Now, to wrap up, we like to play a game. And this week, we or this month, this bi-month, we are repeating our favorite game today called Which Fish Story is Not a Fish Story? And so, in this game, we present two fish lies and a fish truth. And in this time, Titus, who won last month, has to guess which one of these stories is the truth. And so, what we did is, is uh, Katie, Carolyn, and I all have fish stories. We are going to present them in a random order. We have these data buoys, and so we are able to ask our data buoys to do little tasks for us. So I asked them to generate a random order, and they did. And so the first story that is going to be read is going to be read by Carolyn. Carolyn, take it away. Because it's Carolyn's story, it's fish-related. All right. Octoweel's Aquarium Exhibit to Open in April 2023. There is an old saying that reads, talent without discipline is like an octopus on roller skates. That may need to be retired now that Gloria, a two-year-old giant Pacific octopus from the Texas State Aquarium in Corpus Christi, has mastered the art of walking on wheels. 
It's absolutely incredible, gushes Matthew Reeder, an aquarium worker who helped Gloria strap on her first four pairs of skates. It took about a week, but she's just so intelligent she quickly figured it out and has been obviously excited to try them on every day. Some other aquarium workers express concern at the amount of water that winds up being displaced from the tanks to the floor as Gloria begins her descent each day, but Matthew shrugs. It's really not that much worse than when she sneaks out to steal fish snacks from nearby, and the potential to get people excited about science and exercise is just too great to pass up. The Octowheels exhibit was made possible through a partnership with Skateland, the self-proclaimed best skating rink in South Texas. It runs through September 2023. All right, so skating octopi in South Texas. That is story number one. Katie, story number two. University of Washington researchers discover anti-cancer compound in hagfish slime. In a breakthrough in cancer research, scientists at the University of Washington have discovered a new compound in the slime of hagfish that may have the potential to treat certain types of cancer. The compound, dubbed hagfishin, was identified in the slime of hagfish, a primitive eel-like fish known for its ability to produce copious amounts of slime as a defense mechanism. Researchers discovered that this slime has the potent anti-cancer properties, which they believe could make it a powerful tool in the fight against cancer. This is a remarkable discovery, said Dr. Sarah Johnson, the lead researcher on the project. Hagfishin has the potential to revolutionize cancer treatment by targeting specific cancer cells and sparing healthy cells. The discovery of hagfishin was the result of a multi-year research project that involved screening thousands of natural compounds in search for new cancer therapies. The researchers found that hagfishin was highly effective at killing cancer cells in laboratory tests, and their next step is to conduct clinical trials to determine the safety and effectiveness of in humans. If the trials are successful, hagfishin could become a valuable addition to the arsenal of available cancer treatments. This is a reminder that the natural world still has much to tell us, said Dr. Johnson. Who knows what other treasures are still waiting to be discovered. There we go. We have cancer-curing hagfish slime. They're really slimy fish, aren't they? Do their, do, does their slime cure cancer? Maybe. And our third story is from me. Now, I am older than Carolyn and Katie, so I have to hold mine up and read it. Uh, one day you too will, but that's fine. A small outback community in Australia received some unusual weather recently when residents went outside to find a rainy fish. Locals in Lajamanu, a community on the northern edge of the Tanami Desert, said they were stunned to see the fish drop during heavy rainfall. However, this is not the first time that it's happened. The same phenomenon occurred in Lajamanu in 2010 and was also reported in 2004 and stretching back as far as 1974. Weather experts believe incidents like these can be caused by strong updrafts like tornadoes, which suck water and fish from rivers and dump them hundreds of kilometers away. We just seen a big storm heading up to my community, and we thought, yeah, it's just rain, said a local city councilor. But when the rain started falling, we saw fish falling down as well. At the Museum of uh, Art, the Museum and Art Gallery of the Northern Territory, the curator of fishes there, Michael Hammer, said the rates of phenomena like this were just growing across Australia. I think next time it rains, you just need to be out there with a net, catching the fish as they fall and properly documented, he said. Let's get some citizen science going and start to build a picture. So there we go. Titus, we have three stories, two of which are fish stories, one of which is not. We have skating octopi, we have cancer-curing hagfish slime, and we have fish raining from the skies in Australia. Which fish story, Titus, is not the fish story? 
I don't know. I mean, they could all be true, couldn't they? Um, hagfish have caused accidents with slime. Could be a cancer causer too, but I think I'm going to go with... Let's hold on. Let's do it right. Oh. You think you're going to go with... But I think I'm going to go with... Fish from the Sky. You are correct. This story comes to us from uh, whatever website that is. It was logo I don't recognize, but it comes from ABC uh, in Alice Springs, Australia. Fish raining from the sky. Uh, and apparently it happens with increasing frequency. Titus, that means that you are our winter. You are our winner. It's no longer winter, but my brain apparently along with my tongue are, is frozen. Take it away for 30 seconds of soapbox time. All right, uh, get out there. Uh, it is spring. We've been talking about uh, spawning fish. And I want you to get out to your local creek, to your local lake, and find some spawning fish this uh, spring and summer. Uh, observe those fish. Watch those fish. Uh, bird watching, it's so, it's done. It's tired. Fish watching, that's where it's at now. So get out there, watch some fish, have some fun. Ask Dr. Fish is brought to you by the fine people at Illinois, Indiana, Sea Grant, Wisconsin, Sea Grant, and Gobi Dog Media. The show is produced and hosted by Stuart Carlton. That's me, Carolyn Foley, Dr. Fish, Katie O'Reilly, and Dr. Fish, Titus Seilheimer, our winner. Titus wins every time. we got to figure something out. The live broadcast guru is the amazing and professional Tammy Winslow. Tammy, thank you. My goodness. And it's produced by our pals at Great Lakes Now. News about the lakes you love. Go check out their show. Uh, it's really, really good. Really, really informative. The podcast version of our show is edited by the awesome Quinn Rose, and we thank Quinn for everything. Quinn, thank you, thank you, thank you. The podcast artwork is by Ethan Kosak. Go view his portfolio at ethankosak.com. That's K-O-C-A-K. If you have questions, questions or questions or whatever for our Doctor's Fish, send an email to askdrfish at gmail.com. Use the Twitter hashtag, AskDrFish, or give us a call on our hotline at 765-496-IISG. Hey, everybody, thank you so much for listening, and we'll see you live on YouTube and Facebook at 11 o'clock Eastern on the second Monday of every even month. In between now and then, if you have fish questions, science questions, or life questions, just ask Dr. Fish. <laughs>